Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exorcise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Tessa Suela, and with me is Andy Bowman. Hello. And Dr. Sam Morris. Still not going to say Spooktober. Hello. Are you ready for this? Are you ready? I'm ready. I will never be ready. It's Spooktober, y'all. Since this is a sequel, we're calling this one Spooktober 2, Bride of Spooktober. We had a short argument a couple weeks ago on whether this was Bride of Spooktober or Son of Spooktober, but I would like to point out Bride of Frankenstein came out first. This week, Sam wants to be left alone and undisturbed. Andy reads Stranger Things younger but more accomplished brother, and I find that people are strange when you're a stranger. I just want to say real fast that um, there is a movie called Dracula's Daughter. So I feel like once we're on year four of Spooktober, we're going to have, I think year four has to be Spooktober's Daughter. Andy, you're in charge of that one. Um, hmm. No. She'll be verbal by then. Oh, God. Don't, no. (laughs) That is the true horror. Don't don't you put that evil on me, Sam. (laughs) Enjoy watching, uh, what is it, Caillou? Peppa Pig? Paw Patrol? There there will be no Paw Patrol in this house. There will be no Caillou in this house. There is only Daniel Tiger. Be prepared to watch the same thing every day for like a year. Okay, okay. You, you, you know you know what? You know what? I'm going to tell you guys right now. If you search on YouTube, Dancing Fruit, there is a 20-minute video of Dancing Fruit to songs. Noel immediately gets enraptured by it. Tessa, Andy watches anime. He's already watching the same thing every day. You know what? I'm not. I'm not gonna let. I'm. I'm not gonna let that. No. I'm not gonna let it. Ha- I'm not gonna let that phrase me. Phase me. No. I like the idea of the dancing fruit, though. You have to start them early on their musical tastes. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, the he's already the dan- got her trumpet lessons. Yes, ska. It's it's happening. <laughs> Noelle uh, is actually the person who brings ska back. Like she has a she she actually becomes a musician and brings back the entire genre. The prophecy you was are you are now introduce, introducing her to people as the mighty 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 Noelle Bowman. Okay, Tessa. <laughs> or oh, I'm sorry, the real big Noelle. Tessa, what did you watch this week? You can't encourage him, Andy. You can't encourage him. I watched the 1987 film The Lost Boys. The, the directed Lost Boys. by Yes, directed by It's a vampire film directed by Joel Schumacher and stars a giant ensemble cast of Corey Haim, Jason Patrick, Corey Haim, Jason Patrick, Kiefer Sutherland, Jamie Gertz, Corey Feldman, so both Corys, Diane Wiest, Edward Herman, Billy Wirth, Brooke McCarter, Alex Winter, Jameson Newlander, and Bernard Hughes. Okay. Okay. 
And and for those of you who are only fluent in pop culture, this movie stars the boring Corey, the guy who took over for Keanu Reeves in Speed 2, Jack Bauer, the good Corey, the wife from Footloose, Grandpa Gilmore, and Bill S. Preston, directed by the guy who gave Batman nipples. Uh now, Tessa, where, where does where does Lost Boys take place? It takes place in Santa Carla, California. You know, that's the one thing about Santa Carla. The god vampires. So, what is it about? You said it's a vampire movie? Yeah, so very briefly, the, pre- the premise of this movie is fairly straightforward. Michael, played by Jason Patrick and his younger brother Sam moved to the small beach town of Santa Carla, California, which is is fictional. It's actually Santa Cruz. With their recently divorced mother, Lucy, played by Diane Wiest, and her father. Santa Carla is the murder capital of America. Uh, You have to say it properly. It's the moida capital of America. (laughs) Michael soon becomes entangled with a mysterious gang led by David, played by Kiefer Sutherland, in what I'm honestly going to say is his best role that I've ever seen him play, and his lady star... And Michael begins exhibiting strange abilities and weaknesses, which his brother soon begins to interpret as vampirism. Vampirism. So now, Tessa, I know a few things about you. I know Just a that few. I, 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 I know that you are ninety percent financial dominatrix. I, I know that you prefer red lipstick with the blood of your enemies in it. Uh, and of I know. Course. As one you, does. I know that you love vampires. Yeah. It's all, this all checks out. Okay. Are vampires the only reason that this movie appealed to you at all? Well, I mean, I'm not going to say it's the only reason, but it's definitely the reason I watched it. I've watched a lot of vampire films over the years. I've read a lot of vampire fiction, and everyone keeps telling me that this is like one of those seminal vampire works, but I just never got around to watching it. So this Spooktober, I finally got around to watching it. So this has definitely been a big thing on my list for a long time, and I'm crossing it off, baby. Okay, and real real quick, I also want to add one more fun fact about Tessa. She is in the 99th percentile due to her height. To, uh, 99th percentile uh, due to the ratio of her height to her energy. She's I mean, very I can, energetic I can for accept her height. That. I can accept that. Okay, so so this this is this is vampires. You mark this off your list. It's um, cheesy eighties uh, homoerotic vampires. Did you like is there this? Other, is there another kind? Yes. Have you seen Nosferatu? Well played, sir. Well played. And they are Willem Dafoe or or uh, Donald Sutherland. Tessa, did you like this movie and why? I liked so many things about this movie. <laughs> This this might be one of the best movies I've seen in a long time. I really, really enjoyed it. It is a very specific thing, but let me tell you some of the things I enjoyed about it. First of all, anybody who, I mean, knows anything about literature knows that The Lost Boys as a title is a reference to Peter Pan. This is obviously on purpose. There's a lot of allusions to Peter Pan and this idea that this gang of vampires is sort of trapped in this perpetual adolescence. There's a lot about adolescence in this film as well, and kind of like male bonding and resistance to the idea of growing up and getting married, right? 
uh, Star, who is like the lady vampire part of the gang. She's not quite a vampire yet. She hasn't killed anybody, but they're trying to get her to, you know, become part of the gang. But she's resisting it because she actually wants to grow up. So there's a lot of Wendy vibes there. There's some also some plot related allusions to Peter Pan, which I'm not going to spoil. But suffice it to say, there was a lot of that going on, which I found really fascinating. And of course, Michael, the Jason Patrick character, is named after a character from Peter Pan. Michael is the younger brother of Wendy, or one of the younger brothers of Wendy. So there's that as well. I also really enjoy... I, I like vampires in pretty much any any way that you want to talk about them. I, I enjoy them. But there was really this move in like the 70s and 80s to start talking about vampires in different ways than had been talked about before. So with Dracula and those vampires, they're very aristocratic, right? There's a lot of like Orientalism going on, like, you know, somebody from Eastern Europe, like invading England. There's a lot of like gay panic with with Dracula as well, because, you know, he's equal opportunity. He'll suck the blood of anyone, right? So there's there's kind of that going on as well. But then with Anne Rice in the 70s with Interview with a Vampire, you get this sort of shift to vampires. They're still aristocratic. They still have like this old, you know, world type of history, but they're also sort of living more in like the margins of society. You you get, you know, some more of that type of flavor. This movie and Another movie that came out the same year, Near Dark, which was directed by Catherine Bigelow, which we watched, Sam and I watched it in our horror film class. They really make this move towards vampires being like lower class. Like they don't have a lot of money. Like the vampires in The Lost Boys are like living out of a cave, which looks very like Phantom of the Opera decorated it. In Near Dark, they're living out of a blacked out van. Like you get this more like counterculture vampires, right? Like they're younger, they're meaner, they're, you know, they're wearing all their black trench coats and they all got mullets and eyeliner and they don't got a lot of money. Are they leaner? Eh, you said maybe, they're meaner. Are they leaner? May, maybe Alexander Winter. Man, Alexander Winter's mullet in this is just, like, perfect. Like, he's got, like, a perm on top and then, like, the long straight in the back. It's, it's just, it's wonderful. So I, I really enjoyed that sort of move. It's, like, very different and very, it feels very new. Like you said, this movie is very campy. It is very 80s. Um, I mean, it comes out in the late 80s, and there's a lot of those sort of campy, over-the-top, everybody's wearing these colorful clothes, it is set in Santa Carla, which I said is actually Santa Cruz. And a lot of the locations are actually just Santa Cruz. Like the boardwalk is all, that's a real boardwalk. And there's just a lot of those shots of different people enjoying this sort of over-the-top lifestyle, this sort of playful lifestyle, which I appreciate. Joel Schumacher, of course, is, or was, extremely gay. So there's a lot of, like, queer male gaze in this. Like... Like, I, I can't even describe it to you. There's a there's a section at the beginning where they go to see this band who is just, like, shirtless and oiled up, and it's just all muscles, and, like, it's just, it's kind of wonderful. Sam has something that he would like to say. Well, actually, I have two things. First of all, that guy's playing a saxophone, too. Like, come on, man. But Joel Schumacher is still gay. Like, you you have to believe in a very gay afterlife, right? Like, 
the straights have ruined this one. So, like, the gays get an afterlife. I don't know if the afterlife exists for everybody, but I know it does for the gays. So he's having a good old time there right now. So is gay. Yeah, and this movie has just, like, it really contrasts, like, the coolness of the vampires. Like, there's a lot of cool vampire vibes here. But it contrasts it with this, like, really funny, almost meta humor to it. Like, very campy humor. Uh, there's a there's a scene that I just I kept laughing about it throughout the entire movie where Sam, you know, is telling Mike is begging Michael not to kill him. Right. He's like, please don't kill me. I'm basically a good boy. And it's like the like one of the way he delivers that line is so funny. And that is like the humor of this film is that like you get this like very soulful, dark you know, metaphor of adolescence with these vampires. And then you have Sam and his friends, the vampire hunters, who are basically the same age, who are just like, they're really messing it up. Like they're trying really hard to do their anti-vampire stuff, but they're like relying on what they know from comic books. And so they're trying to like figure it out. And they're very, very funny. Speaking of the vampire hunters, they are played by Corey Feldman and Jameson Newlander. And they are hilarious. Somebody told Corey... Feldman, and I'm assuming it was Joel Schumacher, like, play Rambo if Rambo was 14 years old and ran a comic book store. And that is what this character is. Like, he nails it. And he is so, so funny. And, of course, their names are Edgar and Alan Frog, which is, like, perfect. Like, it's just, it is so funny. There's all of these little in-jokes. I told Tessa when we watched this movie that I, like... Brat Pack V2.0 better than I like the first group. You know, this this second group's got Kiefer and Alex Winter and and Martin Sheen's two kids who don't appear in this movie, but, you know, um, Young Guns is essentially the Western version of Lost Boys. It's the, the whole throw them all in. And then the two Corys are kind of like the the little brothers of the of this second version of the Brat Pack. Like, these are just fun people to watch. And Sean Astin, who also is not in this movie, but he's in The Goonies. But yeah, I mean, I think Joel Schumacher would agree with you, Sam, because he is on record as saying that what makes this movie is the cast. Like, these actors, these very young actors, I mean, many of them are just like young teenagers, fully commit to this wild campy ride that is Lost Boys. And, and I have to say too, I prefer Kiefer Sutherland as a ridiculous bleach blonde homicidal vampire than any of his cop roles. Like Where any of his nukes? Yeah, any of his There's no time. Damn any, it. Any of his cop Lovely. roles, any of his twenty you know, like twenty-four roles, I I don't care. Like he is better as a vampire. I enjoyed him so much in this movie. The other really remarkable thing about this movie is of course the soundtrack which is like 80s like people don't soundtrack things like they did in the 80s like they just don't and this soundtrack includes a a lot of covers of songs that were made specifically for this but uh, Thomas Newman did the score you get Good Times by Jimmy Barnes and In Excess you get 
Lost in the Shadow, The Lost Boys by Luke Graham. You get Don't Let who This... Is, who is the lead singer of Foreigner? Who is the lead singer of Foreigner. He made that specifically for this movie. Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me by Roger Daltrey. Laying Down the Law by Jimmy Barnes and In Excess. People Are Strange, which is a wonderful song. It plays several times in this film by Echo and the Bunnymen. I think that's on your Halloween playlist, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. Yeah, so People Are Strange, of course, is originally by The Doors. And the Lost Boys have a giant picture, a uh, poster of Jim Morrison, but the cover's done by Echo and the Bunnymen. And of course, Don't Go, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me is originally by Elton John, but it's here covered. So the, the covers are great, yes. Now, Tessa, what, what did you think of the attempt to, uh, to turn the Lost Boys into a uh, CW show that failed? Oh, they tried so many things with this show, but I, I want to talk a little bit more about the soundtrack. The... The song Cry Little Sister is also played several times. It's sort of like the vampire theme in this. And that was by Jared McMahon. Uh, Power Play by Eddie and the Tide. I Still Believe by Tim Capella. Like there's just so many good soundtracking moments. Even there's even a scene where like a bunch of like Nazi skinhead surfers are like dancing around a fire to walk this way. And then they're just, like, immediately decimated by, like, the vampire gang. Like, it's just, like, a really wonderful soundtrack. And I just, I very much enjoyed that. And Joel Schumacher, uh, as I mentioned, very, very gay. Lots of queer male gays. I will say the one thing that didn't really ring true was, like, the straight romance that's supposed to be in the center of this. It just doesn't, as much as I like Star as a character... It just doesn't really ring true. And I think that's because Joel Schumacher doesn't actually know what straight men are like. Like, we were laughing the entire film about the posters on the walls of, like, both Sam and Michael. Because they're like, like, why would a why would a straight kid have a poster of some of the people that are on? Do you remember what, what some of them were that we were just like, why? Who was it? Uh, it wasn't who, it was the fact that it was a dude with like yeah. rolled up bare skin. Yeah, That's there's there's the- like all these posters on those do- uh, uh, on the walls of this supposedly straight character of like all of these like half naked men and it's like I don't believe this character is straight. Like I just don't and like that's that is the one thing, but I didn't care. Like I just didn't care. This movie is just so very good. Like you said, Andy, there's been so many attempts at a sequel. Joel Schumacher actually was going to do a sequel called Lost Girls, but he could just never get it off the ground. Um, so David, the the character played by Kiefer Sutherland, was supposed to actually survive The Lost Boys, and then that was going to be our entryway into a sequel. It just never happened. There have been a few straight-to-DVD sequels featuring various members of the cast in in minor roles, but I'm I'm not going to watch those. Like, I don't care about it. Like, this movie is kind of perfect as it is. What about the uh, the just-announced actual sequel, or uh, actual reboot coming out? Eh. How could it be better than this? Like, I just... The, my thing about some reboots is, like, how could it be better than this, like, gorgeous 80s classic? Well, I mean... It is being directed by uh, John Entwistle, the director of uh, End of the Fucking World, and um, I'm not okay with this. Meh. Write your own movie. Do something different. It is starring um, the boy from Knives Out and Defending Jacob and uh, the other boy from um, Honey Boy. Shrug. Like, again, yeah, I just... 
There are some movies you don't the need to remake. The problem is you only want 80s. That's the problem. You only want 80s things, Tessa. I just don't think that this movie works outside the 80s. Like, it's very rooted in 80s culture. It's a vampire story, Tessa. Vampires are not only 80s. Andy, it's a lot like David Harbour's career. It doesn't work outside of the 80s. He worked in Black Widow. Partially set when? When, Andy? For like, for, for like what? For one scene? And, and his entire character is based on the fact that he was once a famous hero from, from when, Andy? What decade? I need to 70s. hear you say it. The 70s. You know I'm right. You're not right. You're realizing in real time that I was right. He was in jail since the 80s. Which explains and, why he's stuck there. And and that beginning of Black Widow took place in the 90s. Yeah, that's right. That's how you, old you are, Sam. You know I'm right. Who would you recommend this to, Tessa? Well, I would recommend this to anyone who loves the 80s. So if you like films that involve some of these actors like The Goonies... Some of those more like campy 80s style films, this is a perfect example of it. I also recommend this. A time that you were not alive. Sure, but I still enjoy it. Uh, I would also recommend this to people who like vampire films or like vampires in general. This is. This is a wonderful example of specific vampires. In fact, the I meant to mention this, but then I forgot. The prosthetics of the vampires, like the, the way that their faces change, really reminds me of the vampires from Buffy. So it does. That, it does. That is something that I would definitely, I did not know going into this. So if you enjoy Buffy, I think you would actually really enjoy this as well. And also, a few weeks ago, a few episodes ago, I don't know how many episodes ago, I reviewed the film Bit which is a more updated film that came out in 2019. Bit has a lot of DNA in common with The Lost Boys. In fact, I would say if we were going to talk about... Wait a second. But you just said The Lost Boys doesn't work outside of the 80s. You just said that. It's a, the, the actual energy of The Lost Boys doesn't. Uh-huh. The plot uh-huh. does. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. So it's almost like the thing could be rebooted. No. And remade. Well, if we're going to say that, then Bit already did it, so why do another one? Because money, Tessa. Whatever. Bit has a lot of DNA in common. If you want to talk about spiritual sequels, Bit is probably closer to it than anything else would be, especially because instead of male queer desire, we get female queer desire in in Bit. And so I, I would definitely say if you watched Bit and you liked it, Watch The Lost Boys. I I really enjoyed it. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm a sucker for any vampire film. I don't even care how bad it is. But this this is a good one. Would recommend. Two more quick things about The Lost Boys. Number one, I was very concerned about the dog. The family does have a dog. And anytime a dog is introduced in a horror movie, I always get very concerned about the safety. So I had to look it up. The dog does not die. For those of you, he's not even harmed. In fact, he might be the smartest person in this family. Might be. Might be. Also, this movie has one of the best ending lines of any movie that I've seen. I won't give it away or spoil it, but it is fantastic. As we announced two weeks ago, doing time travel here, we have a website. And of course, we have plenty of content for Spooktober. Bride of Spooktober. Andy. Yes. What's coming up on the website from you for Spooktober, Bride of Spooktober? Well, my, my critical hit list from last year from when we lived on the Pop Culturist Hub, movies for people who 
horror movies for people who don't like horror, that list is being republished. And also, at some point, it's going to get a sequel. That's all I'll say. It it's it's already had a sequel, so technically this would be a threequel. Okay, fine, Sam. It's getting a fourth quill, okay? Because I'm going to go twice. I'm going to make two lists now, Sam. Proud of you. This is how we trick Andy into writing for the, the website. We annoy him into writing. And it works. Now, to remind us, is this a Sarah-approved horror list? Because Sarah famously does not like horror. Sarah does not like horror movies. That is right. She, she uh... Did not even want to uh, read what I read this week, but this this list is indeed Sarah approved. There are some scary elements to it, and I do make note of them in this list. I do say like the number of jump scares, and and uh, I even give little time marks of where they are. Um, That's helpful for those of us who like to hide under our blankets during jump scares. Yes, but enough about Sam. Let's continue. What are you writing, Sam? You know, the, the irony is, is that, you know, making fun of you about the notes, you write my questions, and I read them for you in the notes. But enough about segment three. So also on Pop Culturist last year, I published my Halloween playlist that I curated, worked on for about five years that is a playlist that is uh, just the Monster Mash on repeat <laughs> and Werewolf Bar Mitzvah from 30 Rock. I think you've made that joke before. Yes, um, I have. <laughs> because Werewolf Bar Mitzvah is the I best hate, song. I can't stand either it's one of those songs. Joke. So, I mean, yeah, it's a good Spooky joke, though. He's scary. <laughs> men be boys, boys, boys becoming men, 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 men becoming, becoming wolves. wolves. <laughs> so, the first list that I made is classic rock. Halloween and adjacent songs. So I've been working on a second list for a couple of years now. I'm going to try to get it in some semblance of shape for this Spooktober. It is the pop version. So, you know, some, some, not the monster mash, but you know, some pop songs that skew more towards Spooktober and then some adjacent stuff, like perhaps something from the Lost Boys soundtrack, for example. Or or the uh, theme song from the Adams Family animated movie uh, performed by Little Nas X. Or or hear me out, the Adams Family rap from Hammer. Say Tessa, I assume that you're gonna do something on the website for Spooktober related to like the creature from the Black Lagoon. Would that be correct? No, that would not be correct. I am actually writing a. I mean, I'll probably write a lot of Spooktober content because I enjoy it, but. I, the new thing that's coming out beyond my review that it was on the Pop Culturist last year about ro- the remake of Roald Dahl's The Witches, I will be writing a five vampire films to watch this Spooktober, Bride of Spooktober. So be on the lookout for that. Like I said, I love vampire films. I got vampire films for you to watch if you're feeling in a bitey mood this Spooktober, Bride of Spooktober. All right. <clears throat> Andy. Yes, Sam. I I read uh, Something is Killing the Children. Now, this is a comic. Like the things for children. You're, you're really going to have to sell me on why this is something 
that should be considered for Spooktober. Right of Spooktober. Give me the elevator pitch. Um, Andy gives elevator pitch. I feel like there's a real war of attrition happening in the notes over the last couple of weeks. Oh, and it's going to continue. I, I, I have what I need to do. My battle plan is flawless. But let me tell you about something that's killing the children. Four teenage boys are having a sleepover. It's dark in the room. They're sitting on the couch. You can see the glowing light from a TV and a video game console. They're playing Truth or Dare. The youngest one, or at least the most timid one, picked truth. The other boys tell him, tell us the time the tell us the time that you were the most scared. So he tells them a story. He says, I heard this noise coming out of the ravine. Like this big moan. I thought it was the wind, right? Coming through the trees. I turned out the lights in the TV room. In this room right here. I just wanted to see what was out there, so I looked out that window. And just for a second I saw this I I don't know, this thing, standing taller than a tree, standing in the middle of the yard, like it had been walking toward the house, but the lights turning off confused it. It had these long fingers and sharp teeth. I went and hid under the blankets on the couch and just listened in the dark for like an hour before looking again. But when I was there, nothing. There was nothing in the yard. The young boys, uh, clearly a little bit freaked out, uh, tell him he's lying, that that's not true. He says, yes, it is indeed true. And he says, fine, truth or dare. On the next page, the same boy is in this impossibly white room being investigated by a police officer. He's being clearly being interrogated. He's saying it wasn't real. I didn't see a thing in my yard. My, I, I lied. You know, I just wanted to screw with them, you know, like, like boys do on sleepovers. They continue their conversation for a little bit. And the police officer finally says, it's okay. We need to understand what happened. So please just tell us what happened next. And he says, I heard them screaming. Then the reader flips the page and in only black with scrawl, scrawl, scratched letters in white, it just says something is killing the children. And that is the start to this amazing comic book. Something is killing the children. I, Sam, just my pants because that's so scary. And as you should, Sam. This this is a very well done horror comic. It the art is wonderful. It plays with uh, both color and perception and what you see when you flip pages. Um, it knows what it's all about, and it knows that there's something in the woods that is indeed killing the children. Seriously, is it any good? Hmm. Well, Sam, since you are so clearly interested in whether it's good or not. Uh, hold on, hold on. Seriously? Is it any good? Well, Sam, since you are clearly so desperate to find out if it's any good or not, I will tell you. This is a, this is a comic book. I am somebody who enjoys comic books, but this is a comic book that won the 2020 uh, Eisner Award. or uh, It was nominated for the 2020 Eisner Award for Best New Series. It is insanely good. It is captivating. And uh, I don't want to say too much and spoil what's going on because, like any other murder mystery where things are happening weirdly in a small town, this is uh, in best enjoyed blind. So I will indeed confirm that there are some form of monster in the woods killing the children. 
and a character comes up who seems to know something about what these monsters are, and more importantly, how to kill them. Her name is Erica Slaughter, which is just a wonderful, wonderful name. Was was Van Helsing already taken? Yes. Yes, Yes, it was, by Van Helsing. Come on. (laughs) Come on. I mean, Slaughter was already taken by Sergeant Slaughter, but, you know. Yeah, but Erica wasn't, okay? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's right. Lou Vega had taken Erica because he needed a little bit of... Mambo number five. (laughs) Hey, if he hadn't persevered through Mambo's number one through four, he never would have gotten to number five. Yeah, but as soon as he got to Erica Slaughter, she killed him. Seriously though, the 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 art in this is wonderful. Uh, Slaughter is a a a Dean Winchester or a Sam Winchester character rolling into town. It seems to be experienced with whatever it is that these monsters are. There is definitely an allegory going on for for uh, how the things are only killing children and not attacking adults, and the adults in the town keep making things worse because they think they know what's best. Uh, it has a great... As they do. Adults always make things worse. It has a great sense of humor. And more importantly, it really feels like what if Stranger Things had just lived up to its premise uh, from episode one, right? Stranger Things went off in its own direction. After episode one, it was a very different thing. But what if there was a dangerous demigorgon going around killing people in the town yeah it's great it's wonderful i loved it uh read it it's great something is killing the children all right anything else you want to say about that uh yes uh something is indeed killing the children all right so in conclusion go fuck yourself san diego you know one of these days i'll actually watch anchorman <laughs> guys we're still a work a, a safe for work podcast we have a lot of bleeps in this episode Hell no, we're not, Tessa. This is this is this is Bride of Spooktober. <laughs> I saw a tweet, and I I don't remember who tweeted it, so I'm sorry that I don't have attribution for this. But I saw a tweet where somebody was like, "Pixar should just make like a hard R-rated movie, like just to keep us on our toes." That that's what this episode is, just to keep people on their toes. That's right. At the end of this, Sam is going to cut off his own foot to escape from Tessa. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sam. Last year, for Spooktober, you did The Mummy, which you famously hated. You hated that movie. So, for- I believe, I believe Sam said it was top 10 worst movies he's ever seen. Is that accurate? I wish that was true. I, I have seen a lot of bad movies. I'm not sure that one cracks the top 10. But and well, I maybe. know Sam hates Brendan Fraser. What what did what did I hate? Brendan Fraser. I know you hate Brendan Fraser. Oh yeah, yeah, really yeah, weird. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think nothing but bad things should happen to that man. Schadenfreude all over the place. Folks, I know what you're thinking. That we're canceled because we insulted America's sweetheart, Brendan Fraser. I just want to point out that that was sarcasm. We love Brendan Fraser, and we are a Brendan Fraser for your podcast. Anyway, for Spooktober, Bride of Spooktober, you watched The Invisible Man. 
Not the. Shouldn't it be Spooktober too, Bride of Spooktober? Are you the one doing the sound effect every single time? No, I'm not. All right. <laughs> That's why I'm telling you. Is the Invisible Man better than the Mummy? First of all, yes. And, you know, who knew that becoming invisible would drive you murderously insane? Who could have possibly predicted that? This movie also causes us to ask some other important questions that I posed during the movie to Tessa. What if invisibility was a symptom of COVID? Do conservatives think that gay people are invisible? Is that why they're so upset about the gays? And and for that matter, do conservatives think Antifa are invisible? Like they are afraid of like like invisible people just terrorizing everything? And well, and what if what if becoming murderously insane was the side effect of an actual drug like Viagra? What if and then finally, what if Jack Griffin who is the name of the scientist in the movie. What if Jack Griffin, as played by Glenn Howerton in AP Bio, was in this movie instead? These are all important questions. Now, now I, w- I will point out that ever since the 80s, where, you know, again, Tessa's favorite decade, as she just said, the conservatives have always seen poor and minorities as being invisible, which again, Tessa's favorite decade. This movie was not from the 80s. It is a 1933 sci-fi horror film from Universal Pictures, directed by the man, the myth, the legend, James Whale, otherwise known as the 1930s Joel Schumacher, starring Claude Rains as the Invisible Man himself. Okay, so you did not watch the 2020 uh, Oscar-nominated, in my heart, Invisible Man. That is correct. We, We watched the old, the first Universal Horror one. So, Sam, I bet there's a good story behind the production of The Invisible Man isn't there. See, you're not the only one who can write questions. So, <laughs> after... <laughs> that is correct. We... So, after Dracula, right? The, the first big universal horror movie. There were a lot of folks at, at Universal Pictures who was like, let's make The Invisible Man next. That would be really cool. And then Carl Lemley is like, no. Let's make Frankenstein. Bring me Frankenstein, he said. Just like that. But but some enterprising soul bought the rights to Wells' novel anyway, but in a move that Orson Wells would approve of, H.G. Wells got script approval when he sold the rights. So <laughs> I, I, would, I would like to see Universal Pictures make a movie called Saving Mr. Wells. Just like the Disney movie Saving Mr. Banks. That's what I would like to see. So, anyway, so that happened. But at the same time, they bought the rights to another novel called The Murder Invisible by Philip Wiley, which is less sci-fi, more horror. So, Karloff, Boris Karloff, signs on to star in this movie, but James Whale pieces out because he doesn't want to be a horror director. He wants to do, like, straight-up, like, films, right? And so a guy named Robert Flory comes in and writes the draft, the first draft to this film, The Invisible Man. But he uses Philip Wiley's stuff. And so the original script of The Invisible Man has like invisible octopus, invisible rats, and Grand Central Station explodes at the end. So Karloff pieces out when he gets wind of that and goes to join 
James Whale, who has now decided that he wants to make horror films because his film that wasn't horror bombed. And they go off to make the, uh, the uh, old dark house together. And then Flory pieces out, too, because everybody thought his script was wackadoodle, so he went to go do something else, too. Now, several people, multiple people, including famous film legend John Huston, tried to adapt this thing. But they keep using the murder invisible instead of the invisible man more. Preston Sturgis, Sullivan's Travels, The Lady Eve, just film legend, takes a crack at it. His script is about a Russian chemist who becomes invisible and takes revenge on the Bolsheviks that have terrorized his family. Universal fired him the day after he turned that script in. James Whale and Boris Karloff come back. And then James Whale writes a a treatment, but because he is, of course, super gay, he decides, what if the Invisible Man was like the Phantom from Phantom of the Opera? And they're like, no. And they nope that so hard, because they're out of money, Universal actually shuts down for a few weeks. And, And while that happens, more scripts get written, including one by R.C. Sheriff, but also Boris Karloff pieces out of the project again. So when Universal boots back up, they still have James Whale, and they really like Sheriff's script. And importantly, so does H.G. Wells, who has noped several versions of the script, because remember, he has the rights. He likes it because it has nothing to do with the murder invisible. Quit trying to make that happen, he says. And then he says, you know what would be really good? I just had an idea. What if the drug that makes the dude invisible also makes him insane? Wouldn't that be fun? And so we're about ready to go here, except there is an apocryphal claim that cannot be proved that Philip Wiley, who wrote The Murder Invisible, is the last person to polish the script of the movie. Hollywood, right, folks? Am I right? So this story might actually be better than the movie itself. I mean, it might be. The movie's pretty good, though. So Jack Griffin, the movie begins, Jack Griffin, already invisible, is, is terrorizing an inn, its innkeeper, husband and wife and staff, and all the people down in the bar, right? So Jack Griffin is an apprentice of a scientist named Dr. Cranley. He's engaged to Dr. Cranley's daughter, Flora. Dr. Cranley has another apprentice, Dr. Kemp. In the most predictable plot twist ever, he is also in love with Flora. But anyway, Jack Griffin has been experimenting with monocane, a a derived from a plant powder, I guess, uh, that was found in India and was previously experimented with in Germany. And I know what you're thinking. This is obviously going to work out just well, just right. And, and, and so, by the way, monocane is like Morley cigarettes. It is the fake drug that is used when you want to talk about a fake drug. It has been used in Perry Mason, Matlock, and Diagnosis Murder. And I know what you're thinking. What is Diagnosis Murder? Matlock is the TV show property that that aging star Andy Griffith starred in to reboot his career. Diagnosis Murder is the show that aging star Dick Van Dyke used to reboot his career. Monocane is used all the time. It's in it's fictitiously, it's not real. It's like Ice Nine. Yeah. 
Now, really, really, really quick here, Sam, before you go off on all of this, I, I would I would like to bring up that this story was partly told in the movie Gods and Monsters, starring Brendan Fraser. So if you if this podcast really truly does love Brendan Fraser, we should probably watch that movie sometime soon. Okay. So, much like Brendan Fraser's career, the special effects in The Mummy are accomplished by, and they're really good, by the way, the special effects in this movie are pretty astounding, okay, for the time. And they were mostly accomplished in the typical ways that you would expect by mirrors and wires, except, except the special effect that is basically them draping an entire set in black velvet, bidding out Claude Rains in head-to-toe black velvet, shooting it and using it as a negative. Oh. Yeah. Get on their level. Like... that That's impressive. It is impressive. This is a really good movie. That's also terrible. <laughs> At the same time, that is the genius of James Whale and Joel Schumacher. I mean, I think... We inadvertently picked two movies that have a lot of parallels to each other. There's definitely a lens through which you can you can watch The Invisible Man. So definitely better than The Mummy then. So it's definitely better than The Mummy. A uh, couple of things. Claude Rains. This movie made him famous. All the movies that he was in subsequent happened because of the success of this movie. The movie Andy just watched, which is the the number two, mostly considered the number two best movie of all time, which was an accident of all the greatest possible coincidences of all time that led to this gin joint in all the world, right? Part of that is due to The Invisible Man. Now, Gloria Stewart plays Flora, the, the scientist's daughter. If you've heard of Gloria Stewart before, if that name is doing something for you, she's the old lady in Titanic. One other thing, because we talked about Dracula and Hammer and the Elizabeth Moss Invisible Man. All of those have come up in this podcast. So I just want to point out that the Invisible Man got no love as a property. Hammer didn't adapt it. Hammer remade most of the Universal movies but they did not touch The Invisible Man. What's really funny is, in 2016, Ed Solomon, who worked with Lost Boy Alex Winter to make Bill and Ted, was going to make an Invisible Man movie with Johnny Depp. And uh, it was going to be written by Alex Kurtzman, but they all moved on. And so this is in 2019, when they had the whole Dark Universe thing happening, and that eventually brought us to the Elizabeth Moss starring The Invisible Man, which is a severe departure from the original, except I didn't know it brought forward the insanity angle, which is really interesting, right? Because there's this constant argument that plays out in a lot of sci-fi, including Frankenstein, if you consider that sci-fi, and maybe you probably should, but... If you do, actually, there's a lot of contention that, that Frankenstein, at least the film version, is not sci-fi. It's straight-up horror, which slots The Invisible Man in as the greatest, first greatest sci-fi film of all time. Interesting. This whole thing about 
crazy, and genius. Is it the genius that makes you crazy? Is it the crazy that makes you genius? That's the thing that we see going constantly throughout this kind of strain of films. I really enjoyed it. I mean, this is one of the Universal movies, original 1930s Universal movies, that you should see. Right up there with Dracula and Frankenstein. Dracula, Frankenstein, Invisible Man. Give the Wolfman a miss. Give the Mummy a miss. I'll tell you during... Spooktober! Son of Spooktober. I will get you my review of the final franchise in the Universal, original Universal Horror, The Creature. So stay tuned for a whole year. Tune in next week. Sam watches Corpse Bride, and we debate whether Nightmare Before Christmas is a Halloween movie or a Christmas movie. Plus, because I know how to time travel, Nanny Og's Book Club is releasing their episode on Weird Sisters on Wednesday, which is about witches, so it fits right into Spooktober, Bride of Spooktober. Where can we find you, Andy? Uh, yes, you can find me on Twitter at AndyNoted. Sam? You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Send us your thoughts about the pop culture we've talked about today. What are you watching for Spooktober? Bride of Spooktober. What are you reading? What are you playing? We want to hear all about it. We want to add some stuff to our list and maybe add some stuff to yours. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Visit our website at www.monkeyoffmybacklog.com. Our theme song is Hot Shot by Scott Holmes and could be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get that monkey off your back. <laughs>